people often used to say to me, oh, how come you've got all the good stuff? I'd say, well, we're all fishing in the same ocean. You know, it's like, what, why, why do you think my staff are much better than your staff? It's got, has to do with conditions. Today on Dirty Linen, we are talking to Mario Di Pasquale, one of the founders of Mario's Cafe in Fitzroy. Mario's uh, opened 35 years ago, and it's not long after the 35th anniversary of this iconic Melbourne cafe that one of the two Marios that owns it retired. It's taken him a few months to be talked into speaking about this milestone, but Mario, welcome to Daddy Linen. I am absolutely thrilled to have you on the show. Thanks, uh, Danny. It's nice to talk to you. So... I don't. I don't know if we should start at the end or begin at the beginning. But let's 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 leap into your life as it is now. Tell us uh, about the end of your time at Mario's. What took you to that point? Oh well, um, the other Mario and I had been um, talking about an exit strategy for a few years. Um, we're nine years apart in age so it was always going to be difficult when we got to this age i'm 68 now so you know and he's still 59 so he wanted to keep going and i'd had enough uh not had enough is not a way to talk about it it's really you know i was physically over it and at 68 it's kind of time to to pack up so a few years ago we had planned that um, on the 1st of July 2020 uh, that I would retire. And, of course, in March that year, we went into our first lockdown and, um, you know, we worked through that for another year and a bit. And then I retired on the 1st of July this year and Mario has taken it over. Wow. So did it just feel like you couldn't leave the business when it was so imperiled by the tricky times that we've all been through? Yeah, it just didn't seem right to to do it at that time. And in re- in retrospect, it was the right thing to do because, you know, uh, years years ago we you know, sat around planning Mario's and planned Mario's and then we planned the Continental, which was also a big part of our lives uh, for 10 years. And um, this was an opportunity to, again, work together and plan our way uh, through the pandemic closes. So it was really great to be there that extra year, even though I suffered sort of physically, you know, my, I've got a bad knee and all that sort of stuff. I think it's 35 years on the terrazzo floor that uh, has kind of wrecked them. And how has it felt to be out the other side? Um, well, what happened was on I retired on the 1st of July, which was a Thursday, and we spent Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday in Melbourne and then we, we've got a place on the Great Ocean Road and we came down here and then two days later we went into lockdown. So I spent four months down here in lockdown, which was kind of good in a way because it sort of separated me from that city life and, you know, wanting to go down the cafe and have a coffee every day because I live basically just around the corner in, when I'm in Melbourne. Um, so the separation time was great to to be away. 
uh, was just, you know, freezing and cold and windy all the time. Um, so there was not much you could really do. <laughs> so it's kind of... There's not much you could really do anywhere, really. No, well, that's true. But it's sort of like it it blew Fitzroy out of your brain a little bit, like you didn't have to have the have the pull of the cafe and, and the social life there to, um, keep, to keep drawing you back in. That's right. And it allowed me to, um, you know, oh, I can't explain it, but it allowed me to separate myself uh, from what I'd been doing for 35 years. Uh, in fact, it forced me to rather than allowed me to, which, you know, five months down the track I think was a great thing. Mm. Really interesting. I mean, I've long admired the way that you and Mario Macaroni um, ran the business. Like you were, you crossed over one day a week and each of you was there three three days actually I've, I've probably got I this isn't seeming to add up to seven but anyway <laughs> basically you crossed over a little bit but you were each there was always well, one of you there, there. Was always a Mario there yeah there was always a Mario there and it was such a um it's it's such a special cafe it's certainly been important to me at various stages of my life and I know it's one of those cafes that you know even people who spend 15 years away from Australia and away from Melbourne you know that's where they come back to um I, I, I just can't it's hard to imagine Mario's with the singular Mario. Uh, I mean, what? Do, how does that sort of strike you? Uh, well, I think, you know, Mario's will be exactly the same. Like there'll be no changes. It'll just be more work for, uh, for Mario. But um, the majority of uh, the customers won't even know that I'm gone, I don't think. I mean, you know, there'll be a whole lot to do. But things just won't change. It'll just go on, go on, going on. Really, it's there. There'll be no changes, and and I don't think uh, that uh, it will be different in any way. For me, the only difference was, you know, I, I heard uh, uh, Mario on the radio with Virginia Trioli one day talking about. The, the reopening at the last reopening. And um, that sort of made me feel a bit weird. It was sort of like, well, that used to be me, you know, and, and now it's not. So it's going to take a while to come to terms with that not being part of Mario's anymore, not being part of the decision-making process, not being part of the menu-making process, not being part of any of it, really. Although in lockdown, I still made some jams and stuff and took them down there. So my jams are still available. I'm still doing that. <laughs> There's still a taste of you there. That's yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Oh, there'll always be a taste of me there. Yeah, look, of course there will be because, you know, it's such a such an incredible heritage. And one of the very special things about Mario's is that the staff of, well, many of the staff have been there almost as long as both of you. Uh, you know, it's just incredible to think you've got waiters that have been there more than 30 years. It's it's an incredible testament to the way that you've looked after your people. Um, on this podcast, you know, we, we speak to people who are, who've, 
you know, often we speak to people, they've got a lot of fire in the belly, you know, they've got all these these plans stretching out ahead of them. They're fighting their way through the difficulties of hospitality, you know, of course, uh, never more so than in these past couple of years. But I just would love to get your perspective on the industry from from where you stand, you know, out the other side. I mean, what, what, how do you reflect on our Australian hospitality industry? Well, certainly since I got my first job in hospitality in 1975, it's come a long, long way. And I think the most important part of that was in the 80s when the Kane government um, commissioned the Neuenhauser report into liquor licensing. And very soon after, um, I think it must have been 87 or uh 88, maybe, uh, all the liquor licensing uh, rules changed, which allowed more freedom. So we were lucky enough to open in 86. So a year later, uh, you know, things were very open as far as licensing went and as far as people, you know, having a go and setting up and having ideas, which was exactly what, what we did. You know, we, we worked together at Sindos Bistro uh, in the city with Raymond Sindos, which was, you know, near the Exhibition Street corner there. Um, So we spent a lot of time in Pellegrini's and, um, you know, we loved being there and we loved what it it stood for. Uh, And we decided that we wanted to have our own place that, you know, was down market yet up market at the same time. So by down market, we, we sort of meant being at the lower price end to attract those sort of people that can't afford to, you know, have big expensive dinners, but also at the same time have well-dressed waiters, have tablecloths, have all that sort of thing that you would get in a in a, a a nice restaurant so it kind of proved to work quite well and from the really early days because we had no breakfast lunch and dinner as such we just had continuous service and right up until maybe five years ago we used to do breakfast or you know, our catch cry was breakfast all day, every day. So we did breakfast from 7am till 11pm, um, which, you know, I really pushed for years and years with Mario to stop. And finally, about five years ago, I think when, I think when McDonald's started advertising breakfast all day, every day, I said to Mario, it's time to stop, you know, it's time to stop doing it into the night because it became a bit of a problem for the cooks because you'd be set up for nighttime service and you'd have an order for poached eggs and bacon or something. So you'd have to, you know, get pans out and do all that sort of stuff. So we cut it off at five o'clock. So we still did breakfast all day till five o'clock but it just wasn't available at night anymore. And it led to a much smoother running of the kitchen at night. Mm. Well, it is interesting, this whole idea of giving people what they want, because, I mean, as you talk about, you know, you did, yeah, like some musician who was asleep all day could get up and have their breakfast at, at 8 p.m. If, if that's what suited their, their life. And, you know, off they went to the gig after that. But there was also a... a, a 
there was also some ways in which Mario's just wouldn't cater to people. So it was, so for example, you know, you couldn't order your coffee, you know, a almond frappuccino with, you know, extra, you know, whatever sweetener. I don't know what, like there were, there were some things that you weren't flexible on. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you balance that sort of giving people what they want, but also drawing some lines and saying, no, this is not who we are. This doesn't feel right to us. Yeah. Well, that's kind of an interesting question. I guess that um, you have to make those, or we had to make those decisions as to, you know, what we thought was important uh, as far as um, being accessible to the public and especially the public that, were coming to us in those early days, which was really very arts-based, you know, that stuff about musicians, artists, performers, all that sort of people that led irregular hours were immediately attracted to us uh, because of the hours we were keeping and because of the way that, you know, they could get whatever they want whenever they wanted. Well, not whatever, that what we had to offer. And, you know, it's kind of a tiny place. And um, it the, the setup just didn't allow for us to have, you know, four jugs of milk and two grinders, one for decaf and one for non-decaf and one for, you know, single origin espressos and stuff. So we had to keep keep the coffee thing to very, you know, black or white, really, Um, which was sort of like our first wine list. Our first wine list was, you know, red or white, you know, make your choice. (laughs) Which one do you want? And the coffee was like that as well. It was black or white. It was full cream. We just didn't have the space. But as as the years went on, we really uh, had to have a non-dairy alternative and so we started to use soy. Okay. I suppose I suppose that what I'm trying to get to is is something around identity and around is that balance between you know giving anyone who comes through the door an experience that they might be looking for but also staying true to what you're able to offer what makes sense to you and i think you know this sort of you know going through all these lockdowns and you know people having a great difficulty finding staff and you know all the all the difficulties that people are facing at the moment i think a lot of people are asking themselves well how do we differentiate ourselves you know what is our core what is it that we want to present to the world and perhaps you know we do see a, a lot of businesses, try, you know, not trying so hard to be everything to everybody. Um, I just wonder, you know, how you would reflect on that from coming from a point of view of, you know, a business owner that always seems to have had a really strong through line. You know, it always felt like Mario's. Well, I think that anybody opening a business is going to have a business plan and go, going to want to know what they are want to achieve um, in the way of uh, the aesthetics of the business, what it, what it offers and its profitability. So it's really all in the business plan and then all the personal stuff comes into play. Um, so you make decisions on, A, 
you, you know, you make fiscal decisions, obviously, but you also make decisions on what you want your place to be, to look like, and how you want people to perceive it. And that's what you offer. And I think that, you know, we've been pretty true to that over the years. Um, we've just, you know, it's Mario's and this is what it is and people either love it or hate it and uh, that's the way it is. So I really can't add much more to that. I think it's personality-based and um, what what you want out of your business that leads you to the decisions that you make as to when you're open, what you're offering, all that sort of stuff. I mean, Mario and I, for years and years and years, uh, were at loggerheads. Not, when I say loggerheads, I mean, we always had discussions about um, how, how long we're open, you know, like we opened full staffed at really down times. And I, for years, wanted to cut it, cut, cut it back, cut it back, cut it back. So if you looked at it fiscally, we, Mario's would have worked best if it was open from four o'clock in the afternoon till 10 o'clock at night. But, uh, you know, the other Mario's thing was if you want to go to Mario's, you should never have to think about whether it's opened or not. We should just be always open. There should be no time restrictions, no day restrictions, no public holiday restrictions. So consequently, you know, really for the first 25 years of our business lives, we were opened every day except Christmas Day. Did it get harder over the decades to make money with the business model that you had crafted? Um, uh, did it become harder? Well, yes, it did, but, you know, we were, we were true to that sort of thing about it being open all the time so people could come whenever they wanted to. It, it was interesting, you know, like um, after I finished, I've been talking to Mario, you know, not constantly, but we, we speak quite often over the phone. And the first two weeks of the lockdown, this last lockdown, uh, he just closed down. And then he said, oh, I think I'm going to have to open. And um, so he decided to open, like Mario's was open, uh, I think it was 4 o'clock till 8 o'clock, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, right? And that, what he did there was pick out the peak times when people would use the takeaway service and it was quite successful. Mm, it's really interesting. Yeah. I think we, last time I had a discussion with you, I was talking about, you know, how it would be good to cut back hours and you were quite surprised uh, because, you know, everybody's trying to extend hours to make more money. But it, if you look at it the other way, like you say, all the savings that you could make in downtime, because I, you know, I reckon we probably went five hours, five or six hours out of the sixteen hours a day that we uh, were open that was non-profitable. You know, there was a scattering of people in there drinking coffee at three o'clock in the afternoon or at. 
10 o'clock in the morning or you know, those downtimes where, where it's not busy. Uh, maybe we need to go back, like when I first started working in hospitality, we worked split shifts. <laughs> Do you remember that? Of course, yeah. So you'd work from 12 till 3 and go and have three hours off and come back and work six till, you know, close. Um, it was horrendous. And when we started, because um, we'd done quite a bit of that in our early hospitality days, both Mario and I, we decided that this was not going to happen. We weren't going to put people through that torture. So we, that that was how we uh, originally decided to open, you know, for 17 hours a day because we'd do three floor shifts, like three different shifts, and then we'd do two kitchen shifts. So, um, you know, the floor shift, we're working five and a half, six-hour days, which is kind of, especially in those early days when, you know, we had queues out front and all that sort of stuff, um, it's really hard to keep your concentration up for longer than that sort of period. Um, and then the kitchen staff were working eight-hour days. Mm. I mean, it, it's it's so fascinating, and I think this is really sort of at it's one of the nubs of the problem of hospitality being viable for the people that work in it and viable as a business. And I suppose also to create that feeling of community lounge room that cafes often try to do it's you know I mean your staff I'm sure a large part of the fact that your staff have stayed with you you know many of them for decades is because they're not working split shifts they've got those you know good chunks you know they know when they're starting they know when they're finishing um so there's that side of it and you know some of them have been doing the same shifts for years and years and years and you've got to give people you people often used to say to me oh how come you've got all the good staff i'd say well we're all fishing in the same ocean you know it's like what why why do you think my staff are much better than your staff it's got has to do with conditions and um, you know, especially other Mario, other Mario just like bends for people like far more than I ever would. Uh, and that's why we've had great sort of, you know, students that have worked for us right through their degrees uh, because they come to him, he did the front of house rosters. They would come to him whenever they got their uh, um rosters for school and give it to him and he would work around it to make sure that they could keep working and would be fresh enough, to, you know, to be A, at school and B, more importantly, to be working on the floor. So it, it's about, you know, conditions really that keep staff together and, you know, we've been able to keep, as you said, our the majority of our front of house staff, you know, just been there There's for so long and right across the board, I think we've had more than 10 um, long service leaves. <laughs> Which is extraordinary for a cafe. Yeah, yeah. And some of them have been multiples. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Two, 
Two of them have been multiple long service loads. Yeah, that is really, that is extraordinary. It is amazing. It's an amazing achievement. It's, you know, the, I think when, when I um, reflect on what we've done, I think the way that, A, we have treated and been able to uh, maintain staff has uh, been incredible. Um, it's the most successful part of the whole business really is having staff that have been around for so long. And it was also uh, very relevant during lockdown as well because, you know, the, we had 28 people on staff, um, nine that didn't qualify for JobKeeper. So the way that we worked it was that everybody that qualified for JobKeeper had to work three shifts and the uh, people that didn't um, qualify got to fill the rest. <clears throat> so we were able to keep the entire team together and all those people that didn't qualify that were, you know, basically got chucked on the rubbish heap by the federal government, um, even though they had been paying taxes, you know, rented houses, paid for their education, did all that sort of stuff, then we turn around and just dump them on the rubbish heap when the shit hits the fan. It was really, really, really bad. And I know that you did a lot of work on that level and a whole lot of people that I know did a whole lot of work for... Um, uh, people as well, you know, keeping them fed and all that sort of stuff. Moroccan soup bar, they were just incredible. Um, you know, Jagdev Singh, who worked for us, who runs the wine place, which I forget now, they were doing, you know, food packs for anybody in hospitality that wanted to go and pick one up. They were even delivering them and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, everybody came together. I know everyone came together, but... God, did we let those people down? You know, I just can't believe how a federal government could... You, you know, my biggest gripe was why are priests getting JobKeeper and why aren't students who are here contributing to the economy getting it? Why can a prime minister just say, oh, well, if you can't cope, you can just go home? My God, these kids are 20-year-old kids that have left home for the first time, not only left home, they've come to a different country, a different culture. They have to adjust and no one's looking after them. It's so bizarre. But anyway, we won't go on about that. <laughs> I'm sure you could. Oh, look, I mean, it, it's worth going on about it because it is so disgraceful and, you know, apart from the social justice uh, and, you know, simple humanity side of things, there is the, the way that those um, people were mistreated is, you know, has got a lot to do with the fact that so many businesses are unable to staff up now. So it also hampers the economic recovery and that was completely foreseeable. Absolutely. And it took so long, I mean, you know, those students were only allowed to work 20 hours. And after the first time that it uh, we opened up again after a lockdown, um, I remember t talking to the Restaurant and Catering Association and going, you've got to get on to the federal government to allow these people to work more than 20 hours. 
It's ridiculous they're only allowed to work 20 hours. We can't get people to work. I mean, it's ridiculous even at the best of times that they're only allowed to work 20 hours. It just opens things up for exploitation and all other... They can't live on 20 hours' work. You know, they just can't live on it. So then they have to go out and find cash jobs, get ripped off by horrible people, um, and just keep the thing going. It's just like... I don't know how, how governments think sometimes. It's just... Anyway. So, Mario, you, you know, you talked about the physical um, burden of working in hospitality and it's it's significant. It's it's not um, – it's it's a tough industry on the body. I mean, do you think there are ways of mitigating that, of changing that, or do you think it's just something that we need to accept that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of physical work and it just – is something that people can't do um, perhaps as long as they would do a desk job for. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that that's it is what it is. It's sort of like, you know, the construction industry is a heavy industry. Hospitality, even though it seems like it's not, uh, can be very taxing physically, especially if you're working in a kitchen. Um, and even front of house people, you know, they cover a lot of ground and you know they're constantly walking and working I, I think it's up to employers to um you know we, we always kept our our shifts as um short as possible um which was great because you always had fresh people but and you could extend them when, you know, things were, weren't going so well. So, you know, if you've got someone doing four shifts a week and someone falls over for whatever reason, I don't mean fall over physically, I mean, you know, get sick or whatever, um, you can stretch them out a bit. But if you've got them doing five 12-hour shifts, it's a bit hard to stretch somebody from 60 hours, you know, to 80 hours a week. It just doesn't work. So that's that's the way um, we always looked at it. And in our own working lives as well, I mean, Mario used to work Saturday days and I'd work Sunday days, but they were the only shifts that we were actually rostered on for. And, um, you know, if there was emergencies, then you could do them. But if you were doing five shifts and running a business as well, um, you know, you couldn't fill emergencies because you'd just be too exhausted. I mean, you know, we did do lots of hours, especially through the continental years, um, you know, being up to three o'clock in the morning running a live entertainment venue and then fronting up again the next day, uh, that was that was pretty taxing. Um, and running two businesses at the same time and both of them being, you know, quite successful and, you know, renowned for what they were doing. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been uh, an incredible journey and we've... I, I've definitely seen hospitality change a lot over the last 35 years. I mean, it basically started from nothing, really, in the in the 70s um, to to get to where we are today. And we still don't know where we are today. I mean, by today, I mean, you know, pre-COVID, um, things... 
the things will definitely be different over the next two years as the way as to the way people run their businesses. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I think um, that you know we'll go back to having a lot less hospitality venues uh, for a couple of years until people get a bit of confidence. And, you know, young kids come up with ideas and want to try things and do stuff like that. I think that um, things will get more expensive uh, to the consumer uh, because uh, especially staff costs are going to be so much higher. I don't know about you, but I've been hearing stories about all sorts of weird stories about extra money if you stay for a month and all that sort of stuff. So obviously staff are going to get um, uh, more money from it and so that'll have to, you know, be passed on to the consumer. So I think that, you know, it'll be more expensive to eat out into the future. I don't think that we'll see um, uh as many places open as often as what they are. I mean, we're already experiencing places that uh, open, uh, close on a couple of days a week because they don't have the staff to open. Mm. I mean, do you think it's a bad thing that's, that staff, that it is more of an employee's market and, and staff are being paid more and, the, at the, and then customers will have to pay more as well? Um, I, you know, the, I... Half of it I'm happy about, the other half I'm not happy about. I'm not happy about consumers having to pay more to to get what they were getting, you know, two years ago. I'm happy for staff to be getting more. I think that, you know, we need, there'll be a whole lot of things like, you know, I know a couple of places that have moved uh, their operations because, uh, you know, so many empty shops that you can really negotiate rents nowadays. Uh, rents are going to be 30 to 40% cheaper than the, they were pre-COVID. Uh, I mean, I don't know if that's the case all over town, but it definitely is in Brunswick Street. There's people moving their businesses in Brunswick Street to go to cheaper rents. There's shops that have been, you know, not rented for two or three years. And so we're never going to go back to that high rental uh, that we'd looked at uh, through through the 2000s. Um, now, that could mean that, you know, prices don't go up because there's a balance between paying extra for staff and paying less rent and that sort of stuff. But I think we're heading, you know, towards more expensive uh, dining out. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, if you're talking about higher staff but um, but wanting to keep a lid on menu prices, then you do have to find a bit of a magic pudding somewhere along the way. So maybe it is in rents. Um, yeah, maybe it's in shorter menus, maybe it's in different menu structures, maybe it's in shorter opening hours. But then as you as you pointed out, you know, it, it does um, have an impact on on the way that staff can manage their lives and, you know, their timetables. So it's, yeah, it's, it's such a complicated industry. It's, it's so, it's, it's not that complicated, Danny. I mean, you know, it's just like any other business. We just opened in different hours. So you've got to structure that uh, differently to something that's open nine to five. 
Now, you know, for years there's been this thing about penalty rates in hospitality and it shouldn't be paid because, you know, I don't know what, why. But why, why, wouldn't, you pay, why wouldn't you pay penalty rates on Saturday and Sunday? They, you know, people, even though times have changed, there's still days that, you know, were traditionally family days, weekends, you know, church days, take kids to sport, whatever you might want to do. Those days are days where if you work on those days, you should get paid more. I mean, we have in medical, uh, nobody complains about nurses getting extra money on weekends. Why do they complain about hospitality workers getting more money on the weekends? And plus, their their basic wage is so low um, that, Really, I, I can't believe it. And people complaining about, you know, holiday rates, uh, public holiday rates. It's like, surely if you've opened a business, you've um, costed in 11 public holidays a year. Or if you haven't costed it in, you just close on those public holidays. But this stuff about, you know, I went and bought a coffee on a public holiday the other day. And I got charged 15%. Like, it was sort of like um, 9.37. And I said, what's 9.37? He goes, oh, that's the public holiday rate. You know, and it's like, are you joking? You're charging me extra for my coffee because it's a public holiday. Right. So you just think that should be, like, amortised over the year? It just should be built into the cost of running the business? Absolutely. We always do. <laughs> you know, why not charge 20 cents more for a coffee all year round? Uh, you, you know, like that sort of thing. Why are you charging me more today because it's Melbourne Cup Day? That's ridiculous. It's, uh, what, you haven't costed in 11 public holidays? You know forever that there's 11 public holidays. It's not, you know, they're not sprung on you like the grand final one was. I had a problem with that one. <laughs> well, it's—I mean—it's interesting because you know some people complain about about it because they think that it sh- they shouldn't be paying extra at any point. But you're saying I, I really like the way you're thinking about it. It's just like it's the reality of what things what things cost the business. So just smooth it out um, and don't make don't make it jarring for the customer. Um, just yeah, just build it in. I think yeah, there's a, there's a lot to be said for that. I actually refuse to go to places that charge extra on public holidays. I just won't go. And if I've been caught out like I was the other day, I always say something about it because I don't like it at all, you know. Yeah, yeah. well, most of the people, like, being grumpy about that stuff, you, you would draw the conclusion that they thought that people shouldn't be paid extra on public holidays, but, of course, that's not what you're saying. You're saying uh, reward the people <clears throat> who are working on those days that most people don't work, but don't make it jarring, um, don't make it a lumpy customer experience. Um, yeah, it's really, yeah, I love it. So, Mario, um I want to make sure you've had the opportunity to say everything that you want to say. So is there is there anything uh, that we haven't talked about that you would like to get out there? Well, um, no, not really. No, I, I mean, it's been great having the conversation and, you know, thank you for, you know, wanting to know what I'm doing in my retirement. I've basically spent a whole lot of time down here on the uh, Great Ocean Road 
uh, we're near Aries Inlet and um, I've joined the community garden there. So I'd go down and do a bit of weeding. It's a really cool community garden that, um, you know, you can go down and pick vegetables for dinner and stuff. It's uh, really fantastic and a nice crew of people. There's also another thing here called Grow Free. Do you know about Grow Free? Grow Free is, you know, it's set up all over Australia. This one's in Aries Inlet. And it's basically a stall behind a cafe where people take produce that they've grown uh, and leave it for people to come and take, swap. You know, we're not growing much, so I've been making jams and stuff and getting lots of vegetables, seedlings, all that sort of stuff. So it's kind of a community um, set up where people feed each other with stuff that they've grown. It's really fantastic. You know, I, I really love that sort of stuff where you can um, get free food, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Well, and be part of a community. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me that you're still um, finding some rich community life uh, after being, you know, such a driver and part of that community around the cafe in Fitzroy. Um well, Mario, I just want to personally thank you for everything that you've done over the years. Thank you for the Conti. I had so many great nights there, saw such good music and uh, allowed me, I think it allowed me to grow up a little bit and feel like, you know, I could be part of a supper club vibe. Uh, I'm sure it made me <laughs> 000, 0.001% uh, more sophisticated. Um and thank you for all the important conversations that I've had at Mario's. I've solved the world's problems a million times in that room. Yeah, so have I. <laughs> <laughs> it's been such an important place for, for Melbourne and for Australian cafe culture in general. And just like massive shout out for the way that you put the staff at the front of the way that you ran that business. Uh, it's just, it's really a privilege to be looked after by somebody who knows that job so well and you just feel like you're part of a good experience for them too so um yeah just just a huge thank you could i just say a few things as well De uh, of course um first uh first of all uh congratulations on your induction into the hospitality legends i think that you know that's really great especially at such a young age to uh, be inducted. Um, we were inducted, I think, four or five years ago, and um, it's such a it's such a pity we can't get together for dinners because I really miss those dinners with uh, the hospitality legend dinners. Um, hopefully, next year we can all get together. An oversized leg Melbourne Food and Wine Festival Legends dinner would be uh, really excellent. Um, thank you, and yeah, it's it's for me. It's a real, it's a, it's a huge honour, and especially to be alongside people such as yourselves. Um, yeah, people that I've written about and and um, yeah, just uh, admired for so long to be placed in in your company and the, the other Melbourne Food and Wine Festival Legends company is an enormous honour. So yeah. thank you. And the other thing uh, I, I want to acknowledge uh, two people that are no longer with us that have been a huge influence uh, in my life and that's uh, Mieta O'Donnell and Raymond Sindos. 
Yeah. Well, thank you. Do you want to say a couple of words about each of those beautiful people? Yeah. I just got a bit emotional when that's uh, where I stopped. But uh, Raymond was, you know, the most incredible front of house person that I'd ever met. And he just taught me and Mario, in fact, because we both work there, but especially me because I work longer. Um, Really everything I know about front of house, he was an amazing person. Uh, Mietta, you know, the same. What can you say about Mietta? She was fantastic. I worked in Brunswick Street uh, in the early days, like really early days before they went to the city. And Mario worked uh, at the city restaurant at the same time I was working uh, at Sindos. And the uh, chef there, John Dench, who went on to do uh, Dench Bakery. He worked for us for 11 years also. Um, he he was just an incredible uh, influence in really both our lives. Um, so, yeah, it's been, there's been some incredible people that we've worked with over the years. And, you know, the great thing about, uh, you know, M- Morris Tazzini worked for us in the early days. Um, before he started Cafe Cucina in Chapel Street. Uh, he worked for us. And we've got S- Sylvester working there at Mario's at the moment, who's Morris's son. Oh, that's amazing. So he's he's come yeah. to Melbourne and he's doing the restaurant with Morris and Joe Vargetto in the city, in the old Massey space. That's right. But he's working for us meantime until it, till it opens up. So, to you know, to see the generational, and that's not the only generational one um you know it's an important one to us but there's you know we've employed children of employees um which is kind of amazing to think we've been around that long well it's it's an incredible legacy that you're part of and also you know that you leave in in the melbourne hospitality world i know that you're just you know you're not going going anywhere too far just down the great ocean road for now but thank you so much for chatting to me today um i've been at you for a few months and i'm glad that it was finally the right time so thank you so much it's a pleasure and thank you for even wanting to talk to me about it. So <laughs> it's great. Good luck, uh, Danny. Thank you. Thanks, Mario. Take care. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.